Will the no-pitch intentional walk save baseball? We'll talk about that and more with Joe Sheehan next on Baseball HQ Radio. Learn to play the winner's way, because Baseball HQ Radio starts right now. And here's your host from BaseballHQ.com, columnist Patrick Davitt. And welcome to Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 28th. It's show number 10 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I'm Patrick Davitt, your host, and we have another great Tuesday Tout show for you. We'll talk with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter about playing score sheet baseball, the World Baseball Classic, yes, that intentional walk rule, his studs and duds, and much more. We'll also have commentaries from the expert analysts at BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business, in our playing time commentary, Ryan Bloomfield looks at reading the tea leaves at first base and left field in Toronto. And in our frequent flyers commentary, Alex Becky looks at Colorado first baseman Mark Reynolds, a blast from the past, and Texas starting pitcher Johander Mendez. It's another big Tuesday tout edition. Thanks for joining us at Baseball HQ Radio. Hey, what do you say? Less than a week till we start watching real games again. We gotta talk some baseball. And in the first inning of this Tuesday Tout Edition, it's our feature guest interview, and it's my pleasure to be joined once again by Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. Joe, welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick, good to talk to you again. Good seeing you over the weekend at Tout. Yeah, I didn't see enough of you, but it was very busy. They've added leagues. I think Peter Kreutzer said there are now almost 75 different Tout Wars participants, and of course the... There's some fans coming out and everything. It was very crowded. It was very energetic. It was a lot of fun, and it was nice to see you there. I know you've cut back on your traditional fantasy baseball over the last year or two, and I know you also that you're focusing more on score sheet. What was your thinking in moving towards score sheet and away from the more traditional uh, uh, rotisserie-style uh, fantasy leagues? Well, uh, some of it is really enjoying score sheet, enjoying the model, enjoying the uh, the, the holistic kind of you know, defense matters and Getting away from categories, um, I just never was able to kind of master the, you know, stolen bases matter so much in fantasy, and saves matter so much, and category-based roto, uh, I basically play here, there's a local league here in New York City with a tremendous group of guys, that's really my only category-based roto anymore, I just enjoy the score sheet model more, and it's kind of almost getting back to my roots, my, my first experiences in fantasy were playing Stratomatic, um, which is again, you know, more of a, a whole baseball type of game. Um, and then eventually, you know, I learned about Roto and played in a lot of Roto leagues over the years. I played in Tau for a decade. Uh, but I just, in terms of enjoyment, uh, I enjoy playing score sheet uh, more than I enjoy playing the, the category-based games. And I don't think it's uh, one is better than the other. I don't want to make it sound like that. It's just a personal enjoyment thing. And you should play what you have the, the most fun playing. Oh, absolutely. I, I was asked a few times at Tout in various interviews and just people asking me why I had moved from the mixed Tout League a few years ago that I was in to American League only. And I, I said it was the same thing. I enjoy it more. I got my start in the game playing American League only. And when our lives get in the way and we have to limit our participation, um, maybe you just feel an urge to get back to your roots. It could be. Uh, I, I know that you know, I, I just enjoy I, I think it fits my eye a little bit more the, the games that have a little more of a defensive element, games that value, say, you know, on-base slugging as opposed to, as I you know, mentioned, the, the weighting of steals. Although it is funny, I just, I, I, I'm in the middle of a score sheet National League draft right now. I just drafted Billy Hamilton. And one of the players in the league said, does this mean you're going to attempt a stolen base this year? I'm not sure my, st- my score sheet team last year attempted a single stolen base. So I've gone from full nerd stat head on one side to now apparently I'm going to become uh, Chuck Tanner with this year's team. So you were the Baltimore Orioles of your score sheet league uh, in, in past years. Yeah, I think they ran a little too much, actually. <laughs> yeah, well, the the, uh, the four stolen bases, I think, led the club, and I think they only had 20 or 25 yep. all year. It's amazing. Uh, I suppose there's something of a contradiction for me, though, Joe, in that my first league was a real deep keeper, and I actually made a pretty conscious decision not to play keeper anymore. And I know you made a similar decision because you wrote about it in one of your newsletters, I think, around the end of February. I know what I dislike about playing keeper leagues. What is it for you? Uh, there's a few things. I, I, and again, I came up, you know, and, and certainly in high school and college, playing keeper strat leagues. And it, you know, at times having three or four keeper league keeper teams, and 
uh, really getting invested in prospects and drafting and development. And um, it was a, a pretty big time sink. And over the years, I've just kind of slowly dropped those. Uh, and what I find now is that I don't want to spend that much time in the off season thinking about my fantasy right, teams. Um, yeah. As you know, Patrick, I'm a huge college basketball fan. Um, so I kind of like when I get away from baseball a little bit in the off season, you know, college basketball or, you know, other pursuits, whether it's, you know, reading or taking trips or whatever have you. Um, getting away from keeper leagues allows me to kind of have a little more of an off season. Now you're still working, still writing. Um, and, and having to do keeper leagues on top of that just kind of started making it not fun. So I still enjoy you know, playing in these score sheet leagues and playing in my local roto league, but I doubt I'll ever play a true keeper league again. Yeah, I think the I think the same is true of me. When I moved from where where I used to live and play uh, the keeper league, I've tried to get a local home league here. I haven't been very successful. I haven't tried that hard, to be honest with you. And I think most because most of them are keepers. I may never, you know. It's just uh, I find it too hard to keep track of that extra stuff. Just as you say, but you mentioned score sheet. It has considerations than regular fantasy players don't, especially defense, as you said. So I was really interested in your discussion about which player you were going to take. You had the 11th pick in your first round draft. And here's something where the formats kind of overlapped, I thought. Your choice left you trying to decide whether to draft Clayton Kershaw. Now, the 11th pick, somebody who's in a regular Roto League would say, well, it's a no-brainer. But in Scorsese, it's a brainer. Why did you have to include uh, Clayton Kershaw and others in your decision-making? Well, after I, the big speech about not playing in Keeper League, I should mention that this was in the score sheet Mock Keeper Draft, which is a, an off-season project uh, with a number of the, the three, the three true outcome guys are in there, guys like John Maynard in there, where it's score sheet veterans who do a Mock Keeper Draft, 16-round draft, okay. as if you were starting a league from scratch. So one of the reasons Kershaw was there at 11 is that you're seeing all of these franchise-level guys Go, uh, Trout, Correa, Bryant, Seeger, Machado, Harper, Betts, Arenado, Rizzo, Lindor. I think the average age of that group is 23 or 24. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, Kershaw coming up on 30 now, uh, coming off the first, you know, off season of his career where he pitched really well, but he missed 12 starts to the back injury. So that's why he was available at 11. I think in any kind of single season format, he's going to go significantly higher than maybe a Lindor, a Rizzo, uh, probably a Machado. He's going to go higher than some of these guys. So this was a situation where we were forced to choose between a 30-year-old pitcher coming off a back problem and a middle of a middle infield guy or up the middle type of player who uh, could anchor our team. We mostly focused on Xander Bogarts and Paul Goldschmidt as position player options, and ended up taking Xander Bogarts largely for the reasons stated above. Let's take the young shortstop who has the higher floor who you're not going to be sweating in terms of the kind of things we sweat with pitchers, um, even though we're giving up the potential up, upside and the current year value of a Clayton Kershaw. So really it came down to you know, risk profile and age. You could also have had uh, a Roto first-rounder like Trey Turner and Jose Altuve. I can see Altuve on the age side a little bit more, but Turner seems like a natural fit for somebody who had that approach to the draft, especially in a keeper format like yours. Why Bogarts over Turner? Well, I just think that I win, and speaking for my, my partner uh, in this draft as well, we just say I think uh, Bogarts is going to be the better player. Uh, you look at Bo- uh, Turner's rookie season, it was driven by an incredibly good performance batting on contact. I'm not sure he's going to be able to replicate that kind of batting average and on-base percentage. The stolen bases that both him and Altuve bring are less valuable in score sheet. Stolen bases are valuable in score sheet, and they also project out to base running skill, but you're just not – they don't – have the value they would in a category format. So uh, neither Turner nor Altuve really have the same value that they would in Roto. Uh, but really it comes down to just thinking Bogart's the better player. I think the power is still going to come. I think there's a uh, 45 double bat in there. I think there's a 20 homer bat in there. Uh, we'll have to see how the defense shakes out. Uh, and I don't have it in front of me. I believe Bogart's had the better best defensive rating of the three players that we're talking about here. And again, that matters in score sheets. So uh, I'm very comfortable with the Bogarts decision. I, I do think it's a 51-49 thing. If somebody wanted to take Kershaw there, I'd have no objection. But to me, taking Turner or Altuve over Bogarts is probably an error. 
Last question about this topic, Joe. How surprised were you, if at all? Uh, I know I was surprised that Yoan Moncada went 21st overall, ahead of Kyle Schwarber, Addison Russell, Alex Bregman, and Andrew Benintendi. All these guys are young players like you guys were looking for, not exactly franchise players perhaps, but certainly very strong young players. Yoan Moncada hasn't got an at-bat in the major leagues. Why am I wrong in thinking that maybe somebody taking him that high is just being a little too optimistic? It could be. It could be somebody who wants to say, hey, look, if you're starting a league from scratch, somebody might say, hey, look, I'm not going to worry that much about the 2017 season. I'm going to focus on having the best team possible in 1920 and beyond. The other issue is, if you think Mancata is going to be Robbie Cano, do you think he's going to be a 320 hitter with power? Uh, I think they're, that, that's a reasonable, maybe reasonable is the wrong word. I think that's the upside projection for him. And if you think he's going to be that good, then yeah, I'll take him over a bat-only player like Schwarber or uh, it's somebody like Russell, whose bat is a little bit in question. Not to me, but if you want to compare him to him, uh, Magada's projection. Uh, I I think it's a different way of looking at the team, but if you're down there, once you get into the bottom part of the first round, you start thinking in terms of, you know, am I going to play for this year, or am I going to try to build the 2020 champion? You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. And Joe, you had a post-tournament newsletter item that described Marcus Stroman's sensational outing in the World Baseball Classic Final as, and I'm quoting, a Lana Turner at Chasen's moment. Some of our listeners are a little young to remember Lana Turner or Chasen's. What did you mean by that? The then famous for a while actress Lana Turner was, uh, this would have been, gosh, Patrick, the 50s. Um, she was reportedly discovered while sitting at the uh, the deli, excuse me, sitting at the counter at the delicatessen Chasen's in in Hollywood. Supposedly she was, was sitting there wearing a very tight sweater that showed off her talent and uh, discovered and ended up you know, becoming a, a movie star in the 1950s. I'm, I'm fudging the story a little bit because I, I probably use the line more than I, I should given that I'm only vaguely familiar with the story, but it's this idea that it's, somebody who was unknown being discovered. Now, that's not entirely fair to Stroman, but he you know, pitched in the playoffs last year. He had a full season. He's, he's been a prospect for a while before blowing out his knee. But I think if you're just a general baseball fan, you didn't really know who Marcus Stroman was until he threw six no-hit innings in a, war, in a WBC fi- fi- final. It's that moment of, oh, wow, it's a star right in front of us. So um, hopefully Stroman will continue uh, to, to meet those expectations this year. I can tell you it had an impact on how he was re- re- considered or, or perceived in the uh, fantasy baseball world. His ADP shot up, his valuation shot up in cash drafts and so forth. But, Joe, the knock on Stroman has been that he's pretty small, and that means he has to compensate for his lack of height with a real max effort delivery. And some analysts I know have blamed that fact for his knee injury that he suffered. He was striding too aggressively, landing too hard, and all of this kind of stuff piled up and caused a knee problem. How concerning are factors like this for you when you assess Stroman's injury risk in the short term and then his longevity for a a decent long keeper-type career? Less in the short term, uh, because I think that we've reached a point where we know he's going to be able to throw fastballs, keep the ball down, throw that two-seamer that just pounds the lower part of the strike zone and generates a ton of ground balls. I think because he works low in the zone, uh, I'm less concerned about his ability to get plain or to get on top of a breaking ball the way I would be with another a smaller pitcher. Yeah, I'd written about Sonny Gray about two weeks before uh, Marcus Stroman came up. Um, I'm a little more concerned about Gray's future than I am Stroman's. I do think long-term... Anytime you're talking about somebody who's not a physical specimen, you do worry whether the body's going to give out. You mentioned the knee. Is it going to be, you know, having generate max effort? Is going to be something that affects the elbow or the shoulder down the road? But for the next two to three years, 90 to 100 starts, uh, I'm comfortable with, or should I say 60 to 90 starts, I'm pretty comfortable with uh, Marcus Stroman's short-term future. You also had some comments about the tournament and what the United States win means for the tournament. What was that all about? It's a good story. We should, though, win a big baseball tournament. I think one of the reasons we haven't won it is because it's in spring training, and a lot of players don't play. But you know, I think it's a, the best thing for the WBC is would someday for China to win it, you know, for one of these places where we're really trying to grow the game to win the WBC. So, you know, it, it matters. I think it got a lot more people invested uh, than would otherwise. Uh, I think the, the WBC's timing is still always going to be a problem. But certainly I think more people watch it this year the MLB Network got some of its best ratings ever. 
because these games were on a movie network and, and people found them and they got invested. I, you know, I, it's, it's something that could have happened. If you go back and you look at, yeah, they didn't make the play, they didn't make the final four in 2006. They lost on a tiebreaker. You know, they lost a one run game to Puerto Rico in 2013. So the fact that they hadn't won before doesn't necessarily mean that they couldn't have. It's just, you look at the, the end game here, they won a close game against Puerto Rico. They won a close game against, excuse me, uh, the Dominican. They won, and then you look at the end of it. Over the final three games, uh, the final like twenty six innings of the tournament, their opponents went zero for eighteen with runners in scoring position. So, you know, the breaks happened. They got the breaks this year. They didn't get it in other years. Uh, if you were ever truly having a World Cup of baseball, the U.S. would be an overwhelming favorite because of their pitching depth. Uh, but the fact that you know they were able to win it this year essentially without their starting five uh, shows just how far ahead the U.S. still is in baseball. You know, I thought it was a good thing, too, and for this reason. The U.S. is the the big giant of the sport, obviously, and I think that raises the interest of everybody else basically hoping that they can knock off the giant. And every so often, the giant has to win to restore our faith in that there's a giant for them to knock off. I'm going to also ask you, uh, it seemed to me that the level of talent on the U.S. team this year was a cut above what it had been in previous years. I don't follow it that closely. Am I right about that? I don't think so. Uh, I looked in it, and this is across the whole tournament, not just the U.S. team, but it was something like 15 of the top 25 players in baseball were not participating in the event, and a lot of those were American players. Um, and you just look at the pitching. Um, like I say, Tanner Rourke started the, the the elimination game on Tuesday, and then Stroman on, on Wednesday. Nothing against either one of those guys, but if we actually were putting our best pitchers on the mound, those guys wouldn't be anywhere near it. You know, no Scherzer, no Kershaw, no Sale, no... Verlander, no Kluber. I mean, you kind of go through the list of the best pitchers in baseball, and none of them uh, really for the U.S. pitched. So, uh, no, we're still not getting the, the very best guys. And I think until this tournament is moved on the calendar, that's always going to be a challenge. You did talk about in your newsletter, in a perfect world for baseball, the WBC would move more towards the status of soccer's World Cup. You mentioned a couple of things, especially the date. Uh, what else needs to happen for the WBC to take that kind of position in world sport? Again, the, the timing is the biggest thing, and the timing is going to drive participation and competitive level as well. As long as you're holding some of these games in early, early to mid March, players are going to be split between preparing for the season and playing in a, a high level international tournament. The one thing I'd suggest that is kind of split it up into two parts. You'd hold the first round the first or even the first two rounds uh later in march when everybody's a little more ready to play competitive baseball and then you would move either the final three rounds or just even the semis and the finals to the all-star break so every four years instead of having the all-star game you would have the final eight or the final four of the wbc i really think that would be that would make for the best possible scenario because instead of having this tournament go up against you know, NBA and NHL and spring training and the NC2A tournament, which is, which has such a big footprint in March, you'd be playing this out in the week in July where nothing else happens. Uh, you'd have the stage entirely to yourself. And I think that would be a great promote. And also when people are ready to watch baseball, it would also open up more venues. Right now, everything has to happen in the southern part of the United States and you know, dome stadiums in Asia because you can, you, there's only so many places you can play baseball in March. Picture the WBC final at Wrigley Field or Fenway Park or Camden Yards, and it kind of opens up the possibilities to what this could be. So my big thing, like I say, I, the timing drives a lot of the problems. And I think if you fix the timing, even for the later rounds of the tournament, you fix a lot of the issues with the tournament. You know, the World Cup of Soccer, they pretty much start qualifying for the next one right after the the, pre, the current one is over. I wonder if they could do the same thing with the World Cup, uh, the World Baseball Classic, rather, in that maybe they could do your suggestion about having the games during the All-Star break, but have the qualifying start like this season and move forward towards four years from now when you, when you actually have the final. And maybe you could uh, take advantage of the fact that nobody's playing baseball to have... Uh, the world baseball classic constantly on people's minds rather than concentrated like that. Could be. I mean, I know the qualifiers for the World Cup seem to take the entire four years leading up. Yeah. Uh, MLB had some qualifiers for the WBC last fall. Uh, I want to say they actually held some of them out here in Brooklyn. That's how the uh, the Israeli team qualified. So 
that that is certainly one option to kind of make the the World Baseball Classic instead of this thing that just kind of pops up every four years, have it more be a constant thing. And again, as you say, you open it up to more teams. You got you know, hundreds of nations trying to qualify for the World Cup, um, and if you run these smaller tournaments over the course of four years, maybe you do try to use that as a way to to grow baseball in smaller nations without a baseball tradition. I like the idea. You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Patrick Dav with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. And Joe, we've talked about this before, but when Major League Baseball announced its brave innovation in eliminating the intentional walk to save time, I turned to my wife and I said, my friend Joe Sheehan's going to be thrilled about this. Of course, tongue-in-cheek. What do you think of it? It's baseball winning the press conference without actually addressing the problem. Uh, intentional walks take about 45 seconds. So this will shave 45 seconds, you know, a thousand times a year which ends up averaging about 20 to 25 seconds per game, you're not moving the needle. And if you're pandering to people that can't sit through an intentional walk, those people aren't going to be baseball fans anyway. It's, <laughs> it's, it's the kind of surface, pointless move that baseball got very good at during the Bud Selig era, where they're trying to fix the perceived problem rather than fix the actual problem. It's not, and to me, it gets, it gets away from what everything in baseball has to be played out. There's never been a situation before where we're just going to have an automatic thing. Like, you know, when you're a kid and there's no hitting the right field or, you know, you don't have ghost runners because you don't have enough, kid, enough kids to play. And this intentional walk moves baseball away from this idea that every action on the field has to actually be played out. So, like I say, I know a lot of people are like, oh, it's not that big a deal. What are you getting so worked up about? I'm getting worked up about it because there's no automatics in baseball. And if once every two seasons a wild, uh, an intentional walk pitch gets thrown away, or a pitcher gets out of sorts because he's had to throw an intentional walk, it's worth it because you're playing out every action on the field. There shouldn't be any automatics in baseball. Yeah, and, and that raises an interesting point because there are other things that go on in a baseball field that could be rendered automatic by, by rule, and the one that popped into my mind right away when I heard this is, why force a guy to run the bases after he hits a home run? They don't in cricket. If you hit it out of the park, you just stand there and get six points. So, I mean, when David Ortiz was running, that was like a half inning by himself, just him, um, you know, barely uh, glacier speed around the around the base paths. So why don't we get rid of that as well? And you can start looking at all kinds of things that go on that we, uh, that we want to see happen, but that really don't have to happen for the game to retain the scoring structure and so forth. I, I agree with you entirely. This looks like a, a, a Band-Aid on a gaping wound. Right, and if you look at home runs, there were 5,300-odd home runs last year. So now you're talking about, you know, if it takes, you say, I think the average, they trot, they actually track them now, how long trots take. They take about 30 to 45 seconds, but, you know, you're saving twice as much, actually, you're saving, you're saving five times as much time as you would with the intention of walks. And I think you're being tongue-in-cheek. I know Jason Collette, our friend at Rotowire, said something similar at the time, but, I mean, you actually... How often does a player miss a base on a home run? I can't remember the last time that. It's actually less frequent than something goofy happening on a wild pitch. So yeah, right. I mean that's that's a legitimate argument, man. If, once a guy, if, if, if a, once the once it's the umpire puts his finger in the air, just go back to the dugout. That's it. And all the base runners could just leave and walk out, walk off the field, and 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 yeah, the whole the whole thing. Of course, then you couldn't have that uh, ridiculous ground level shot where the guy rounds third and heads for home, and then the TV guy runs beside him, aiming up at his face. And Brian McCann couldn't block home plate when somebody was trying to score in a manner he deemed. Yeah, disrespectful to the game. Yeah, it's it's all very strange, and I, I don't think they're really accomplishing very much. And I did hear some rumblings, Joe, in the baseball media that Major League Baseball was actually looking at maybe shortening the commercial breaks between innings, or at least between half innings. So there would be a shorter break from the top to the bottom and then a slightly longer one from the bottom to the top. How likely do you think that uh, it is that Major League Baseball will actually shorten the revenue streams? It's worth mentioning they did this last year. They cut the between breaks, inning breaks to a strict 220, and they did actually have the umpire. They had a clock on, on the, at the ballpark, and the umpires would get the game going 220 after the previous inning ended. And I thought it was going to interfere with the broadcast, and the broadcasters just you know, did their job getting back from the game. I think we saw, it feels to me, watching games, that there's a lot more uh, native uh, in-game advertising now, uh, whether it's, you know, this call to the bullpen is sponsored by, or squeezing in a promo between pitches or between batters. It feels like that's taken the place of some of the extra commercial time. But, I mean, let's face it. I mean, these games are on television to sell beer and cars and 
whatever else. So you've got to find a way to fit the advertising into the, 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 the broadcast. I'd add that so much of the spike in, ball, in revenue now is being driven by these local cable deals. You know, these networks are going to do whatever they can to get their money back. So there's a limit to what you can do with the local broadcasts. The other issue is that, so baseball's made these changes and they cut back to 220 in the regular season. But in the postseason, when more people are watching, when the games generally start at a later time, and when, you know, frankly, it's a little colder, baseball then takes more time for commercials. The commercial breaks in the postseason run about 320. They tend to run longer. I've got a, a list here of commercial breaks, so I think it was Game 5 of the 2015 World Series. Um, one of them ran like five-something. So even if baseball is willing to make all these changes in the regular season, if they're not willing to make them in the postseason, when everybody's watching, all of the same problems are going to crop up all over again. So you know, if it's important to baseball, that's great, but it doesn't seem important when you're adding 18, 20, 25 minutes of commercial time in the World Series. Uh, you're exactly right. And that's when everybody's watching. And, and so they come out of it thinking, God, these games are getting longer and longer every time I watch. And in fact, a lot of the games are shorter and shorter. I remember not long ago, there was a couple of games that were barely two hours and, and that was, they weren't trying to speed it up or anything. It was just, they were a couple of pitch to contact type guys and they were just moving briskly along. I remember listening to a game once I had both pitchers in it. Joe Blanton was one. And uh, the the game lasted from first pitch to last out an hour and 58 minutes. And I don't think there was a strikeout in it. And that raises the the possibility that uh, Jason Stark of ESPN was reporting that baseball is seriously thinking about raising the bottom of the strike zone. And this seems to me, especially based on a lot that you've written in the newsletter, a much more serious and positive change because anything they can do to force the ball back into play makes the game better and makes it faster. Right. And if you go back to the original idea behind strikes and balls, the idea is to force the pitcher to throw a pitch that the batter can hit. And with the adjustment to the strike zone, which also, and also too, to the development of these tools by which the, the umpires are being graded, what we found is that the effective bottom of the well, strike zone is larger and the effective bottom of the strike zone has dropped to, you know, kind of below the knee. Well, if you're a hitter, now you have to prepare not just for pitchers at the below the knee, but for pitchers that are eventually going to drop below the knee. And you think about the development of velocity within the game. You think about the development of pitches like the cutter. And the combination of that with the expansion of the called strike zone have really, what essentially done is it's turned pitches that were never meant to be hit into strikes. And that's you know one of the reasons why strikeout rates have, dropped, have jumped so much. Baseball's got to get a hand, a handle on the, the pitcher-batter matchup. And one way to do it would be to raise the lower edge of the strike zone. Uh, I, I think that would kind of put some more fairness back into it. Now, I know people say, well, it's going to raise offense. And it might. But if it raises offense in a way that is more balls in play, that's probably a net gain for the game. Uh, it, it's hard. I mean, it's hard to figure out the right balance. It just Pitchers have been able to evolve in a way that hitters simply aren't going to be able to. There's just a limit to the reaction time, and and, and only so much hitters can do. But pitchers have added velocity and added velocity, and um, that's really kind of breaking the game. I think over the course of generations, you might have talked about moving the mound back to maintain the pitcher-batter balance. But at least for now, raising the lower uh, lower bound of the strike zone should help fix that balance a little bit. And what it comes down to is just, you know, making sure that strikes are hittable pitches. Well, I couldn't agree more. How high up do you think, Joe, and I know you may not have thought about this in any detail, but how high do you think it would have to be? I I, I remember that it used to be the top of the knees, and now you said it seems to be more like the bottom. Do you think moving it up even just two inches or two and a half inches would be enough? Yeah, I mean, if you just made it the kneecap or the top of the kneecap, I think that would be plenty. An inch of the strike zone... I think it was Bill James who said an inch of the strike zone is basically 30 feet in the outfield. You mess with the strike zone, you got to be really, really careful. So if you went from the hollow of the knee to the top of the knee or even the, the midpoint of the kneecap, being very clear here, the human eye really is going to have a hard time discerning between the hollow of the knee and the top of the kneecap. And this gets into the whole, should humans be calling balls and strikes? To see whether an object moving at 95 miles an hour, uh, possibly you know, moving laterally, 
is crossing an imaginary line four feet in front of your face, parallel to, you know, the top of the knee or the bottom of the knee, I'm not sure how many human beings actually can do that. And, and, and that gets into, should we be letting these decisions be made by, by lasers or, you know, radar or whatever the technology is that runs stack cast. And I, that's a different conversation, but I think it gets back to this idea of how do we speed up the game? I think an automated strike zone would also speed up the game. It certainly would, and it would have the corollary effect of forcing uh, pitchers to deliver at least somewhat hittable pitches. And balls in play are just more interesting to the fans, too, I think. Everybody likes a little golf applause when there's yet another strikeout. But you get a guy on and then white mount in a double play, the home side is going to, if the home team is in the field, the home crowd is going to be very excited by that. A, a double play is an exciting play, much more than a strikeout is. And I think if there was more ball, more batters, uh, runners aboard, and more balls in play, there'd be more multiple out ground ball outs. And and I think that too would be more interesting. I can't remember the last time I saw a triple play, but I remember as a kid they used to be not exactly common, but a lot more common than they are now. Yeah, balls in play are going to lead to all of these events being more common. And you go back to the origins of baseball. Baseball is designed to be a ball and play game. The pitcher originally was just that, somebody who pitched the ball underhand. And it wasn't until you know, 10 years into professional baseball that pitchers started creeping up and creeping up. And eventually they said, you know, okay, you can do whatever you want. Uh, but the, the game, the pitcher was initially the guy who put the ball in play. And now he's become the guy who keeps the ball out of play. And granted, that's evolution. But if you get back to first principles as to what baseball is supposed to be, it's supposed to be a ball-and-play game. When I was a boy uh, and a young man in Vancouver area, I, I used to play fast-pitch softball. And, uh, boy, talk about an unhittable game. It was uh, an unhittable ball game where there's we played seven innings, so there's 21 outs. And typically there was 18, 18 or 19 of those 21 were strikeouts. And it was so deadly boring that nobody would go and watch eventually. And I think you still see that in Olympic softball. The women's game is pretty horrendous to watch just because of the huge numbers of strikeouts. And so somebody somewhere one day said, I got an idea. Make them hit the, uh, uh, an arc pitch so that pitching is, is greatly de-emphasized and guys can learn how to hit and put the ball in play and everybody can run around. And even in beer leagues, it's way more fun. No question. I, I watched fastest softball, and I don't know how these guys hit. I really, whether it's men or women, I don't know how, I don't know how you hit these pitches. Coming from whatever it is, 40-odd feet away, at you know fairly high velocity from an awkward angle. I don't know how. I've never played fast pitch. I've I played tons and tons of baseball. But I look at fast pitch softball and I'm like, nope, that looks unhittable. Well, it is unhittable. Uh, there used to be a guy, I don't know if you're old enough to remember, Joe, his name was Eddie Fainer, and he traveled in a kind of a barnstorming group called the King and His Court. And he'd go out there and he could really pitch. They clocked him at 105, and, and he was pitching from 46 feet, not 60 feet. And as you say, you can imagine. And because the ball was bigger, it it has more movement in the air because it has more surface for the air to affect and so on. And so he was, they'd literally stand him out at second base and he'd strike guys out. And that's a hundred and some feet from the plate. And it's just impossible to hit a good fast pitch pitcher. And because of the way the strikeout, the strike zone is set up in, in baseball now, the, the same is starting to become true. It's, it's largely unhittable. Uh, you mentioned that the, uh, underlying problem here is even if they move it, the umpires simply can't discern that kind of two inch or maybe inch and a half change that they make in the nominal strike zone. And it's, as you said, seems to be a, a recommendation for automating that process as well. Honestly, Joe, do you think they'll, they'll ever do it or is it going to be just something we're going to have to live with or they maybe will improve their human umpiring a bit by using the equipment to show them where they're wrong? What do you think is the long-term future of the strike zone as far as how it's uh, called? I think the technology is still advancing. Um, I know very smart people have told me that's probably not ready yet. You've got the, the, catching the lateral part is easy. You've got a fixed point with the home plate, but you know, every batter has a different strike zone, and you have to calibrate the vertical. Um, and there's you know, a million other issues involved. Uh, my feeling is that even if the automation isn't perfect, the first thing it would do, it would, it would call pitches based on where they are when they cross the plate relative to what we have now, which is pitches get called based on what the catcher does, and that's you know, just a basic violation of the rule book. Umpire is supposed to be calling based on where the pitch crosses the plate. 
And what we've learned over the last you know, five to ten years with all this pitch framing research is that, frankly, umpires don't do that. So I would take the automated solution that had flaws if it eliminated this nonsense of fooling the umpire. Because this, again, gets into why is the game slow? Because pitchers are trying to throw pitches outside the strike zone and get strikes on them because of what their catcher does. Pitch framing slows the game down incredibly. It's turned, again, it goes from, are you trying to, what are you trying to do as a pitcher? Well, I'm now trying to throw a pitch outside the strike zone and get a strike on it. That's, that's not entertaining. It's also something that, frankly, nobody at the ballpark can actually discern. A catcher moves his glove from here to here. You can't see that for more than maybe 25 seats at the ballpark. So if we're talking about making the game more entertaining, faster, better to watch, ending the nonsense of pitch framing by automating the strike zone will advance that cause. It never fails to amuse me when uh, when a a borderline pitch they call it on the black. I don't think there's actually really is such a thing, but there'll be a pitch that it's borderline, and the umpire will call it one way or the other. And some guy up in section five fifteen says that ball was right on the corner. <laughs> you know, it's like the old uh, Bob Euchre thing. He missed the tag. You know, and he's up in the upper deck. It's it is really quite foolish. Uh, uh, you're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheen of the Joe Sheen Baseball Newsletter. And Joe, you're now also writing about baseball for the Washington Post. Congratulations on that. But first, uh, tell me how it feels to be part of a legacy that includes Woodward and Bernstein, Tony Kornheiser. Uh, I don't know that those three names have ever been used in a sentence before, but we'll run with it. Uh, I. I'm proud. I mean, it's uh, obviously a tremendous brand. You go back to those guys, and I'm thinking just in the last eight to 12 months what they've done here in the States in terms of uh, the the investigative journalism they've put into the political landscape here. Um, It's obviously uh, a place that any journalist would be proud to work for, so I'm happy about that. Um, I'm also happy to be able to, you know, through Sports Illustrated, I get to write for a larger audience. Um, Writing for this hopefully brings kind of this, these analytical concepts to a larger audience. So I wrote about the Cubs the other day and be writing about the AL East. I'm going to do a few pieces here leading up to the start of the season, and uh, I'm really looking forward to it. They've been they've treated me wonderfully. They're, uh, I've got another editors a little bit. They're just really, really good people there, and uh, it's a nice moment. I'm, I'm excited. Do you have any details about how often or how, how what your frequency will be in there and what kind of baseball analysis and coverage will you be focusing on in the post work? They have a section of their baseball blog called Fancy Stats, and that's what I'm doing. So the first thing I did was look at uh, the Cubs' teenage relative to other champions and what that might uh, foretell as far as their future is concerned. And if you're a Cubs fan, yay, it's very good to be uh, a champion and have the kind of young core that they have. It's statistical work that is aimed at a larger audience. So I don't think you're going to see a whole lot about spin rates or anything in there just yet. Um, you know, we might get there as the year goes on. My deal right now is I'm going to do four pieces in the lead up to opening day, and then we'll kind of revisit it next week and see where we are. But, uh, you know, it's going to be, it's going to be up to them. Uh, I'm happy with, uh, writing for them. I, I've, I've enjoyed the work I've done so far. Uh, but it's going to be essentially stathead stuff that's aimed at a larger audience. You know, that's an interesting thing to, to think about too, because, uh, of course I've been a, a stathead probably as long as I've been in fantasy baseball. I like thinking about it in those terms. And what I find is if, when I talk to guys who don't understand the stats or don't appreciate the stats and you get into a conversation with them, as long as you can explain it in terms they understand, they come to like the stats really quickly. And it interests, a genuine baseball fan will be interested by these statistical subjects as long as they're explained in a way that is engaging and that is understandable and that is maybe even actionable in fantasy baseball terms. I can't tell you how many times I've got into conversations with even guys on airplanes, you know, and he's, what do you do? Well, one of the things I'm going to New York for is for this draft. And, oh, wow, how come you're in it? Well, I write about baseball. Oh, really? Well, and, and then off you go, and he's complaining at first about the sabermetrics, and by the end of the conversation, he's you know, swearing that he's going to go and get a copy of the prospectus and start getting into it. I think the important skill there is to be able to take these concepts and make them entertaining. I'm not talking about dumbing them down. Exactly. But just, you know, yeah. Getting away from jargon and numbers and putting things in terms of words and to whatever extent that, you know, I've got a skill set. I think that's something I've been able to do over the years. And I think I'm able to hone that writing for the larger audiences uh, at, uh, at SI and SI.com. Uh, I know my favorite writers 
don't get bogged down in the acronyms and the numbers. I think about, you know, Gary Huckabay and Randy Gisarely and Nate Silver. I think though those guys had a real skill at taking these concepts and turning them into entertaining words. Uh, Ron Chandler, you know, I've been reading him for years at, at you know, he used to be, I guess he still does some work for HQ, but he's got his own site now. And I, these are the people who I enjoy reading, not because of the numbers, but because of the words. Ron Chandler will be my guest on Friday's show. And uh, you mentioned Ranny Gisarely. You used to do, and I don't know if you still do, a podcast with Ranny. It was a terrific podcast, but I don't know that I've seen it on my iTunes of late. What's the status of the podcast? I appreciate the compliment. You know, Ranny's got a, a thriving dermatological practice out in uh, the Chicagoland area. Uh, he's got a number of different offices. He also has four daughters between them. I want to get this right. Oof. I want to say there's from 6 to 14. So for those reasons, he's chosen to kind of not just back away from the podcast, but from baseball in general. He's only written a couple of pieces uh, for the Ringer since uh, they moved over from Grantland. Mm -hmm. Uh, He's really focused on career and family right now. He just doesn't really have the time to do the podcast. Uh, As somebody who loved the podcast because it was, you know, I got to talk to my friend about baseball for 90 minutes a week. Um, I miss it. And we do a lot of texting now, which doesn't really translate as well to a podcast. Uh, you know, down the road, it'd be great to do it again. Um, I, I, like I, say, I I miss it in terms of just being able to do it. I think a lot of people enjoyed it. Uh, it was great to be able to reach an audience like that. But, you know, for now, Randy's going to focus on other things, and, uh, you know, we'll, we'll see what happens down the road. And I suppose this means no more Randy on the Royals, because I used to love that, especially in the Allard Baird era. Yeah, I mean, well, the Royals got good, so Randy got less interesting. And, in fact, if anything, I think that what we've seen, what I've seen him transfer, that's not the word, uh, kind of become here over the last couple of years is more of a, just a Royals fan, where he doesn't have to worry about the analytics as much. He doesn't have to worry about you know, finding angles. And he's just been, if you follow him on Twitter, like he's just a Royals fan now. And it's a lot of fun. And of course, he's got to enjoy the last few years. They run. He actually came out here to New York when they clinched the World Series back in 2015. So as somebody who's known Randy for you know almost 25 years now, it's, it's been Wow, really been that long? Yeah, I guess well, yeah. it's been fun to get him to watch to watch him be able to have that joy and have those moments of, of his team finally breaking through. So, yeah, I miss him as an analyst. I miss reading him. I he's just again, you know, an engaging writer and uh, funny guy. But uh, you know, he's doing other things now. And when I want him to entertain me, I can just text him and say, "Hey, say something funny. Dance for me, monkey, dance." <laughs> You're listening to Baseball HQ Radio, Patrick Davitt with Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter and the Washington Post and Sports Illustrated, so a busy guy. And uh, Joe, I know you mentioned earlier you're a huge fan of college basketball, so what have been your impressions of the tournament so far? Certainly the first weekend was not a great first weekend. The first round was almost boring. Uh, Weren't a lot of great finishes, weren't a lot of big upsets. Uh, at my school, SC had really the biggest upset of the first round, beating uh, SMU at the buzzer, or I should say holding on at the buzzer. Um, the second round got better. thought we got some better finishes. Obviously, I think the, the second weekend of the tournament was a lot better. Just some amazing finishes, Wisconsin, Florida, Kentucky, North Carolina. Storylines really developed. I, don't, uh, I think it's been a good, not great tournament. Because I think we we base our tournament evaluations based on that first weekend. That first weekend was just mad. But you know, obviously a deserving Final Four. And uh, I'm looking forward to watching the games this weekend. And who do you like in the Final Four? We have, uh, I think they start on April Fool's, actually. Uh, start with Gonzaga, South Carolina. As much as South Carolina's run has been tremendous, they've found an offense after being a pretty miserable offensive team heading into the tournament, um, even with a guy like Sundarius Thornwell. Uh, they just Their offense has really been the story in this tournament. They're going to get a lot of credit for their defense, but the offense is why they're still here. Uh, but I think you look at them playing a Gonzaga team, and you wonder if they're going to have an answer in the middle for Karnowski. You wonder if anybody can stay in front of Nigel Williams-Goss. I think you've got to like Gonzaga in that game. Uh, but then again, I've been literally been wrong about South Carolina in four consecutive games now. So you know, going, going against me has been a very profitable endeavor. Of course, you mentioned the North Carolina-Kentucky game, which was a, the exact kind of thriller you want to see in these tournaments. Uh, does North Carolina and Oregon have any chance of matching it for excitement? It could. I mean, I, I, you look at Oregon, and I want to say it was back in December, I said something to the effect of uh, the Dylan Brooks version of Oregon is a one seed. Now, they didn't end up getting a one seed, but they've had a one seed's performance in the, po- in the, uh, in the tournament. Um, and that dominant performance over, performance over Kansas really underlined that this isn't some kind of fluke. This is one of the very best teams in the country. I love this matchup. I love the athleticism on, on both sides. I love the star versus star. 
uh, you know, Justin Jackson, Dylan Brooks matchups. Uh, I just, I, there's a lot of talent on the court. I think, you know, both of these teams have shown they can win in the 70s and they can win in the 90s. Uh, I think that the Carolina Kentucky game was interesting in that it started out as a uh, track meet and then it really slowed down in the second half. And I think the pace of this Oregon North Carolina game is going to be interesting. Are the teams going to go up and down? Because these teams are perfectly capable of playing an 89 88 game. Uh, but, you know, they're both very good defensive teams as well. So I, if I have to pick a team right now, I'd probably take Carolina. But this is one of those games where you don't want to pick. You just want to sit back and relax and enjoy it. Assuming you're right, Gonzaga, North Carolina in the final, who's your champion? I'm going to go with Carolina. Uh, I had Gonzaga losing to Arizona, so I didn't actually have them getting this far. Uh, I think it would be a great story if they won. It would be the first team outside the traditional power structure to win since I don't even remember when at this point, UNLV, I guess. Uh, and, and I think that would be a fantastic, fantastic story, kind of taking that extra step that Butler wasn't able to take in the championship game. But you know, I look at I look at Carolina's athleticism. I look at their ranginess on defense. I think they will be able to shut down uh, Goss. So if that were the, the final, I'd probably end up picking Carolina. Does the championship final on Monday overlap with the first full day of the baseball season? It does, kind of. The, champ- the game doesn't end up starting like 925, and at that point, Given the prevalence of day games, I want to say the last start on, I guess there might be an 8 or 9 o'clock game on uh, on Monday, but likely it's not. There won't be more than one or two games going on at that point. I'll have watched baseball from 1 o'clock forward. We're getting we're going to get some friends here in New York and go out and kind of have an opening day celebration and uh, you know, track our DFS teams and whatever have you. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I'm going to be out most of the day and not come home and watch the basketball game. Yeah, it's going to be uh, a ton of fun. Uh, I was worried about, uh, I have the Monday off as well, and I didn't know what I was going to do, and then I came to the same conclusion you did, that, oh, well, most of them are day games anyways, and if there's a night game, hey, I got picture in a picture if I really need to. Uh, Joe, I'd like to wrap up uh, this time of year with uh, our guest experts providing some studs and duds for 2017 players who are going to be uh, surprisingly good or surprisingly bad. Uh, and you can use any rationale or explanation you like, but uh, let's do it with the studs first in the American League. Who's a hitter you think could be a, a stud hitter for fantasy purposes? Yeah, I'm restricting this to guys who I've taken in my score sheet league. So I've got some, uh, I've got some uh, skin in the game with all of these picks. Um, and I'm going to go with Miguel Sano here. Sano had an awkward year last year. The contact rate really an issue. And you look at, you know, I, I think he was hurt by the Twins' decision to put him in the outfield. When you play a guy out of position, it can create a lot of other problems. He's back at third base now. Probably has some time at DH. I think he's absolutely. I think 35 and 35 home runs for sure. I'm not sure if the base runners will be, allow him to get to 100 uh, RBI, but that's kind of potentially has. I think he's about to take a step forward and be one of the game's great sluggers. I saw him playing right field last year, and he misplayed a ball so badly that it was embarrassing, and they showed a close-up of his face, and he looked embarrassed, and he looked kind of, you know, disappointed, and his shoulders were slumping, the body language was all wrong. I don't I don't know. I, th- I think Minnesota might be better off because they've got a new front office. Maybe they're thinking about stuff like that a little better. I certainly hope so. In the National League, who's your stud hitter? Uh, similarly, a guy I've taken, Gregory Polanco. Uh, Polanco got off to a great start last year. wasn't quite as effective in the second half, but if you look at the year-over-year improvement from 2015 to 2016, the power really started to come. Plus, he's an excellent all-around player. He steals bases. He's a good defensive outfielder. He's moving to left field this year. He'll probably have the best arm of any left fielder in the game. He's got a right fielder's arm, no doubt. Uh, I really think he takes a step forward. The batting average jumps up a bit this year. He could crack 30 home runs, probably still steal you 15, 20 bases. I'm excited to watch him this year. Obviously a little bit concerned about the shoulder uh, injury that's uh, plagued him at the end of spring training, uh, but confident about his season. Moving to the mound, how about a stud pitcher in the American League? I think this might be the same one I gave you last year. Uh, Garrett Richards uh, is back up to 96 in spring training. And I think Garrett Richards, a year ago, had the potential to be a Cy Young Award winner. Now, he had the elbow problem. He didn't undergo Tommy John surgery. He elected to do the plasma therapy. He's back. He's healthy. I think the concern, again, is can he stay healthy all year? If he is healthy all year, I'd like him to be one of the top six or seven stars in the American League. And a terrific bargain in a lot of fantasy leagues because of the injury question and all that kind of thing. Uh, I certainly targeted him in my American League only league, and I was uh, outbid pretty easily because I was a little short of dough at the time. But, uh, yeah, I like Garrett Richards a lot too. How about in the National League, a stud pitcher? I literally just drafted him this morning, Taiwan Walker. 
Uh, I, I didn't like that trade for the Mariners. I thought they gave up on Walker a little too soon to get Gene Segura. Loved it for the Diamondbacks. They traded Segura at the right time. Walker's going to step in. Difficult park, and that, that is a concern moving from Safeco to uh, Chase Field there in Arizona. Uh, the home run rate might be a little high, but I think it's ready to take a step forward with the strikeout rate, take a step forward with the command, be you know, a number two slash number three fantasy starter, and be a key part of what could be a surprising Diamondbacks team this year. I'm very bullish on Walker. Joe Sheehan studs Miguel Sano and Gregory Polanco on the hitting side and on the pitching side, Garrett Richards and Taiwan Walker. Let's move over to the duds now, Joe. Uh, who's an American League hitter that you think is going to be a, a potential dud for fantasy players? Maybe dud's the, the wrong word, but I think the world's a little too excited about Gary Sanchez. Uh, Sanchez had a 40% home to fly ball ratio last year, which was two out of every fly balls he hit left the yard, and that's just... To say it's not sustainable is just I mean, it's not even words for it. You know, the typical league number is around now 12%. Um, sluggers tend to be in the low, tw- uh, low to mid 20s. Uh, the highest numbers I think I've seen before this were like Ryan Howard, I think, had 30% one year. So Sanchez is just completely off the charts. I've seen him going as early as the third round in some drafts. I've seen him taking over Buster Posey. Uh, I'm not buying any of it. I think Sanchez, probably a <clears throat> 260, 270 hitter. I think he can hit 15 to 20 home runs, um, and we'll see what the context numbers are in that lineup too as well. But um, the idea that he's you know one of the top 40 guys in the game is well overwrought. In my Tout Wars American League draft, uh, he went for $25, tied with uh, Jonathan Lucroy as the most expensive catcher. And boy, if you give me the choice for, for 25 bucks, I'm certainly taking Lucroy. Uh, in the National League, who's your dud hitter? This is going to rub people the wrong way, but I'm concerned about Kyle Schwarber. For a number of, he doesn't have catcher eligibility anymore, and it'd probably be a while before he gets it, if he gets it at all this year. Um, and I, I don't know that he'll catch enough to have it in future seasons. We saw last year, he's awkward in the outfield at best, and that was before he blew out his knee. Um, he's still not, you know, I don't think he's ever going, he's ever going to be a good outfielder. We talked about Miguel Sano a little while ago. I think he's going to be on that level of bad. If people remember how he played the outfield in 2015, I mean, he was really, really bad. Because of the, the Cubs roster situation, I think Schwarber's going to lose some at-bats just as a matter of course. They've got to get Jay and Almora and Hayward and Zobrist um, at-bats. I think he's going to lose at-bats that way. He's also going to lose at-bats in games to being taken out for defensive replacements or being pinch run for. So even though he'll be a starter nominally, I think you could see him have a fairly low plate appearance total for a starter. So there's also the question, and finally, whether he's going to hit lefties. So it's no one thing, Patrick, but like I look at Schwarber and I see it, I just take 5% away here and 5% away here and 5% away there, and I just can't get as excited about him as most people do. How about on the pitching side in American League, Dud? Lance McCullers, who I've been fading for a while now, I just don't think he can hold up for a full season. Um, I, I, I love the talent, but he's never been able, he's never shown any endurance throughout his entire career. I think it's another situation where you know, maybe he'll make you 15 to 20 starts, but expecting him to go to 25 to 30 and return the kind of value you need based on where he's drafted or the price he's going for, it's just the innings aren't going to be there. And in the National League, a pitcher who's uh, likely dud for you? Jake Arrieta, if you look at him after about April of last year, the command really started to go. Uh, He started to walk a lot more guys, and I think some endurance was an issue. Remember, he pitched a ton over the 2015 season, working deep into the playoffs, becoming a real horse for that team. I think Arietta is now probably a, a number three type starter, and he's still thought of as a number one, number two. I think the command's going to get away from him. I also think all of those Cub pitchers are going to be a little short innings this year. I think Joe Madden really wants to try to keep those guys you know, right around 200, if not under 200 innings. If you look at how deep they've gone into the postseason the last two years, he's very conscious of the fact, not only of the workload in the past, but of the fact that they want to go deep into this season as well. So Hendricks, Lester, Arietta, you're all going to see them, you know, maybe not in that 215 to 220 inning range, but really more 195 to 200. Joe Sheehan's duds, Gary Sanchez and Kyle Schwarber on the hitting side, Lance McCullers and Jake Arietta for pitchers. Joe, a slice as always. Tell our listeners where they can catch up with Joe Sheehan. Uh, the best place to get all the information is at Joe underscore Sheehan on Twitter. Uh, I have a Facebook page for the newsletter. That's at facebook.com, Sheehan Newsletter. You can get subscription information. You can read excerpts there. I occasionally do a bonus piece, short piece there. Uh, and then, you know, if you want to see uh, 
it's the general site, joshian.com, will get you to a lot of these places. So really the best places are Twitter and Facebook. All right, Joe, as always, it's been a, a terrific uh, time to, to talk baseball with you, and I uh, uh, hope you enjoy the uh, Final Four and opening day. Patrick, thanks a lot. It's have, have fun this evening. Joe Sheehan writes for the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. Our Baseball HQ commentaries are next. Stay with us on Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Ray Murphy, and I'd like to take a minute to explain why we call BaseballHQ.com the best fantasy baseball website in the business. It's because BaseballHQ.com is ready to set you up for success in your drafts with great information across all the major fantasy formats. Get ready for your draft or auction now with news analysis, prospect coverage, and player performance validation. And use our valuation tools and cheat sheets so you don't just get ready. You feel ready and confident that you'll dominate your competition at the draft table. Here's PD with a look at just a little of what's on BaseballHQ.com right now. In our playing time today and tomorrow coverage, Raul Mondesi snags the gig in Kansas City. The bullpen situations in Oakland and Washington. In facts and flukes, big fantasy names like Jose Altuve. Should you go 45 bucks like the experts did? Roberto Osuna, Dustin Pedroia, and many more. And my report on Tout Wars AL Draft, skills wrap-ups from spring training, And that's just some of the great content at BaseballHQ.com. We're adding 30 articles every week to help keep you on top of your game. If you want to invest in your fantasy baseball success, we have a couple of options for you. The full year subscription to Baseball HQ is currently $75, which includes all the articles and tools, plus membership in our HQ forums, the message boards where serious fantasy baseball players like you gather to exchange ideas and tips. We also have a draft prep subscription option with all the same privileges through April 30th for just $39. And if you enter the promo code HQRADIO at checkout, we'll knock a five spot off the price just to thank you for listening to Baseball HQ Radio. Come join us at the website with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It's BaseballHQ.com. And welcome back to Baseball HQ Radio. I'm Patrick Davitt. Time now for our regular HQ Radio commentaries. Coming up, we have frequent flyers. And leading off, it's our playing time segment, where we look at situations that could mean players getting more playing time or maybe losing some at-bats or innings. Here with a look at reading the tea leaves at first base and left field in Toronto is Baseball HQ analyst Ryan Bloomfield. Some tea leaves out of Toronto spring camp hit BaseballHQ.com on Monday, March 27th, and Chris Olson's AL East Playing Time Tomorrow column. Chris highlighted a few interesting tidbits that could have bigger impacts later this season, mainly on Toronto's left field and first base situations. Chris noted that Steve Pierce, who was acquired from the Orioles this offseason, got some action in left field in a March 25th spring training game, and it led to Toronto GM Ross Atkins saying that Pierce could be Toronto's opening day left fielder. Not only would a move to left give Pierce some valuable positional flexibility, he's also one of my favorite deep sleeper targets in the game entering 2017. I noted in a late February Facts and Flukes column that Pierce was a profitable endgame dart throw with easy 20 homer power given his raw power metrics, improving plate skills, and lack of a lefty-righty platoon split. Pierce's move to left would only give him more of a chance to exceed our playing time projections and post even more profit if he can stay healthy. A potential Pierce move to left field would basically cement Justin Smoke as the team's first baseman out of camp. Smoke has struggled to live up to anything close to the prospect hype as he's failed to hit 240 in any major league season in his seven-year career. And Smoke's skills took a bad tumble in 2016 with a career-low 63% contact rate. And while the power is still there, the increased strikeouts could put Smoke on shaky ground to stick as Toronto's starter all season. And that's where the tomorrow portion of our playing time tomorrow column comes in. Keep an eye on Rowdy Telez, who we ranked as Toronto's number four prospect entering the season with an impressive 8B prospect rating. Telez raked in AA New Hampshire in 2016 with 23 homers, a 387 on base, and a 917 OPS. 
Telez will start the season in AAA Buffalo despite getting an invite to camp this spring, but he's potentially just a hot start in a Justin Smoke slump or injury away from getting meaningful work at the big league level in 2017. So keep an eye on how often Steve Pierce plays in left field in Toronto to start the season. It could net him dual position eligibility and allow for his sneaky skills to be profitable in mixed leagues. And if Justin Smoke struggles at first base, you may want to stash Rowdy Telez, maybe even in redraft leagues and definitely in keeper formats, as Telez could make an impact later on this season. For Baseball HQ Radio, this is Ryan Bloomfield with BaseballHQ.com. Ryan Bloomfield is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has a playing time commentary here at the Baseball HQ Radio podcast every week. Now it's time for Frequent Flyers, where we apply BaseballHQ.com tools to pick out players on whom you might want to take a flyer because they could be available in your free agent pool and they have the potential to deliver big returns. This week's Frequent Flyers are Colorado first baseman Mark Reynolds and Texas starting pitcher Johander Mendez. And here to tell you more is BaseballHQ.com analyst Alex Becky. When it comes to fantasy baseball, age is an interesting part of perception. In many drafts, experienced veterans are often passed over for young rookies, yet both could make valuable contributions depending on how they're used. And this week's edition of Frequent Flyers will challenge this perception by profiling two players, one younger and one much older, beginning with Colorado's experienced first baseman, Mark Reynolds. Mark Reynolds blasted 44 home runs for Arizona in 2009 and saw his seven-year streak of hitting 20-plus home runs per season come to an abrupt end in 2015 while playing for the St. Louis Cardinals. But that's to be expected, isn't it? Mark Reynolds is now 33 and skills decline after 30, right? Well, as Rob Carroll pointed out in the March 13th edition of Plague Time Today on BaseballHQ.com, Mark Reynolds was twice felled by wrist injuries. Yet Mark Reynolds, a career 234 hitter, improved his average to a career-high 280 in Colorado in 2016, showing a definite upward trend. Maybe he's figured something out. Then again, a career-high anything, especially at Coors Field, could be a fluke. That's why Mark Reynolds, like all of our frequent flyers, should be considered long shots, who may be worth a flyer if they are available in your league. Besides, Mark Reynolds could still see regular at-bats as a utility player once he and Desmond returns and will likely play three positions, first base, third base, and outfield. And a utility player capable of batting 280 with the potential of 50 to 20 home runs will produce solid value in almost every league. Speaking of capable players producing solid value, did you know that Texas Rangers starter Johander Mendez produced a 219 ERA through three levels of the minors in 2016? That's right, the 22-year-old left-hander matriculated from Class A advanced through AA, AAA, and even made his Major League debut for the Rangers in September. Ranked as a top prospect in the Rangers system in 2017 by BaseballHQ.com, Johander Mendez is a projectable pitcher whose plus curveball is a knockout offering, according to Baseball HQ's 2017 Minor League Baseball Analyst. Maybe that's how Johander Mendez struck out 113 batters in 111 innings for a dominance rate of 9.2 strikeouts per nine in 2016, in addition to his .57 ERA in seven appearances, four starts, at AAA Round Rock in 2016. In other words, many signs are pointing to Johander Mendez being major league ready quickly. But as Jim Leland once pointed out, it takes time to get the whole package. Freshmen can't be seniors, but maybe using an older, younger configuration could easily give your team the whole package when you consider adding both Mark Reynolds and Johander Mendez, our frequent flyers for this week. For Baseball HQ Radio, I'm Alex Becky at BaseballHQ.com. Alex Becky is an analyst at BaseballHQ.com and has our frequent flyers comment here on Baseball HQ Radio every week. And that's Baseball HQ Radio for Tuesday, March the 28th. Thanks very much for taking the time to download and listen to show number 10 of the 2017 Fantasy Baseball season. I also want to thank our guest for this Tuesday Tout edition of the show, Joe Sheehan from the Joe Sheehan Baseball Newsletter. Joe is a tremendous baseball writer who will make you more knowledgeable about the game, and that pays off in fantasy baseball. I also want to thank our regular commentators from BaseballHQ.com, the best fantasy baseball website in the business. Our playing time commentator was Ryan Bloomfield, 
and our frequent Flyers commentator was Alex Becky. I'm Patrick Davitt, the host of Baseball HQ Radio. I hope to see you on the BaseballHQ.com subscriber forums. And remember, you can stay in contact with Baseball HQ on Facebook, on our Twitter feed at Baseball HQ, and you can subscribe to my personal Twitter feed at Patrick Davitt. Or please send us a message on our email address, bhqradio, all one word, at gmail.com, where you'll always be the first to know when a new podcast is available. More importantly, please tell your friends about Baseball HQ Radio. Take a second to go to iTunes and add to our 4.8 star rating. It really does help us keep the podcast going. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back again Friday when our feature guest expert will be Ron Chandler from ronchandler.com and, of course, the founder of Baseball HQ. That's the next edition of the podcast with Fantasy Baseball Intelligence for Winners. It is Baseball HQ Radio. Talk to you Friday. So long. Baseball HQ Radio is a weekly free podcast available through iTunes and other podcast aggregators or directly from BaseballHQ.com where we have an archive of past shows as well. Just look for the HQ Radio microphone logo on the right side of the BaseballHQ.com homepage. Baseball HQ Radio is a production of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The opinions expressed on Baseball HQ Radio are those of the individual speaking and not necessarily those of the USA Today Sports Media Group. The program is produced and edited by Patrick Davitt.